Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth. It is always an honor and privilege to have the opportunity to preach God's word to this congregation whom I so dearly love. Yet, for me, being able to preach to you on this Father's Day is a particularly special occasion, and I'll tell you why. On Father's Day 1999, June 20th, my family walked through the doors of Covenant Fellowship at the Gauntlet Center for the very first time. We had just recently moved to the Philly area. We'd been searching for a church home, and in experiencing the worship and the preaching of God's word, my parents very quickly came to realize that that was where God was calling us to be. That church is where I heard the gospel clearly articulated that Jesus died to save sinners like me. And that truth came to life for me in so many different ways as I grew up in that church. That day was also the first day that I, a nervous first-timer in Covenant's children's ministry, met a young boy my age by the name of Sean Smith, who uh, introduced himself to me, said hi, made me feel so welcome, so befriended. He has remained one of my closest friends to this day. And so the fact that 23 years later, almost to the day, I have this privilege of opening the word of God to you today and partnering in ministry with that brother, it overwhelms me with gratitude for God's grace. Psalm 23 says, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And for me, I feel that strongly. This morning, there has been goodness, there has been mercy. He has been so good. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. For those who may be here with us or newer for the, or for, for the first time, we've been reading through the book of Acts in our Sunday morning gatherings. This whole book truly serves as an encouragement to the church. It is a beneficial exercise to look back over decades, centuries of church history to see the faithfulness of God in preserving the truth of the gospel against the challenges of false doctrine, of persecution, of cultural pressures, and more. And there really is no better place to begin a study of church history than in this book of Acts which is one of the reasons it has been so good that we've been reading it together in our gatherings. And the passage we're actually considering this morning is Acts chapter 4, um, verses 23 through 31. But let's read through some of chapter 3 to provide context for what's taking place. So we'll be skipping down, and uh, so stay with me. We'll start Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried to ask alms of those entering the temple. Verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, 
he addressed the people. And he goes on to preach this epic sermon explaining to them, this is not scripture, this part, how the man Jesus whom they had crucified had been raised to life and the faith, that faith in his name is what has healed this lame man that Jesus is the prophet foretold by Moses, that they must repent of their wickedness and trust in his name alone. So now let's go down to chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. So they begin to question and cross-examine Peter and John, who respond, verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jumping down again to verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. And now we come to today's passage, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Father, will you bless the preaching of your word this morning? Amen. Several years ago, I tried to invite one of my coworkers to church. He and I had been office mates for years, and we had developed a good friendship. We were able to talk about many things. And so I decided one evening... I should invite him to church. So I tried to do this as I was leaving for the day. 
But I cannot tell you how terrified I was in that moment to do that, to invite him to church. I could not even look him in the eye. My hands were shaking and I could barely get the words out. He was gracious in declining my invitation, but I just remember how weak and how scared I felt. I needed boldness in that moment. Maybe you are like me, and the thought of inviting a friend to church makes you a little nervous. Or maybe you've recently been convicted of your need to reach out to a neighbor, but you're not sure how to do that or move the conversation, if there is one, to spiritual things. Or, or to, maybe you've been convicted to start a Bible study or inviting someone to the bridge course, and you don't know how to approach those conversations. Maybe you're even afraid of letting people know that you follow Jesus because of what they might think of you. And when it comes to reaching others for Christ, we need boldness. And this passage is here today for us. In this passage, there is so much encouragement for us, something that will literally put courage in our hearts. Think of the process of brewing tea. As you take the tea leaves and you place them in hot water, they slowly begin to infuse the water with their flavor. And you can see it visibly coloring and moving through the water, so much so that what once was just normal water has now become something else, something better. This is the process of infusion, and today God wants us to see this passage as something that will infuse us with courage. He will infuse a courage and a boldness into us by his spirit. As we've read, this passage speaks about how the early church first began to meet with opposition. Up to this point in the book of Acts, we have seen the very beginnings of the church, Jesus telling them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Then his ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, Peter's subsequent sermon where 3,000 people were added to the church in a single day. But here in healing a man and preaching the gospel, they encounter opposition. They encounter the religious leaders of the day who were greatly annoyed, to say the least. What do they do here? How do they respond to such opposition? Where do they get the ability to do this? Look what happens in verse 23. They went to their friends and they lifted their voices together to God in corporate prayer. So this is a passage not just for individuals, but for the church. And so the application is for the church, and in particular today, for our church. Because sometimes we can think of evangelism as being solely an individual effort and exercise. But as we look at the example of the early church, how it calls us to be together and to be united in seeking God for his help. And so what we are going to find here today, today together is that the main idea of today's passage is that our sovereign God is eager to empower his church to live boldly for him. Our sovereign God is eager to empower his church to live boldly for him. So when we are faced with difficulty in sharing the gospel, we are going to respond in three ways. Number one, we trust 
God's sovereignty. Point number two, we acknowledge the threat. And number three, we ask for faithfulness. We will walk through all of these. Point number one, we trust his sovereignty. Verse 24, when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Their immediate response to hearing what the chief priests and the elders said was to go vertical, to direct their gaze upwards and appeal to the sovereignty of God. Look at their first words, sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Sovereign Lord, the creator of all things. They're saying all of creation, because you made it, owes its allegiance to you. You are the creator, the designer. In you, all things hold together. In you, we live and move and have our being. And because of that, Because you are the almighty creator, the one who directs the hearts of kings like streams of water, we have confidence to approach you and ask you for help. The first thing they speak of is who God is. They appeal first to his character, his sovereignty. They go on because his sovereignty does not end with creation. They quote King David, verse 25, Our father David, your servant, in Psalm 2. As king of Israel, David experienced many times when the kingdom of God experienced severe opposition. The kings of the earth banding together against the Lord and his anointed David the king. There were the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites and Syrians, even his own son Absalom. Truly, as David reflects, the nations did rage and the peoples plotted but in vain. Because God was with David and gave him the victory time after time. Yet here, Peter and John and their friends interpret this psalm as prophetic as well. That this is what would have happened, this is what would happen to a later servant, as they say in verse 27, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They reflect on the fact that the kingdom of God was always going to be opposed. That even what happened to Jesus was part of God's sovereign purpose. This was his plan all along. Everything that Jesus went through, his betrayal in the garden, to his sham of a trial, to his crucifixion on a Roman cross was part of, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There was no surprise. Truly the nations did rage and the peoples plotted in vain. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders all gathered together in the enemy's desperate attempt to stop the advance of the kingdom of God. And yet literally the worst thing that could have ever happened, the murder of the Son of God, the death of the innocent was what God had intended. Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? Why did he do this? Friends, the purpose of God's hand and plan was to save sinful men and women like you and me. He was condemned in our place. He took the punishment of sin that we deserved so that by his stripes we may be healed. 
This was far from a defeat. The nations raged. The peoples plotted in vain. In vain, because even the most powerful of God's enemies are but pawns in his sovereign plan and purpose. Henri Blouchet, a French theologian, writes this. I love this quote. Evil is conquered as evil because God turns it back upon itself. He makes the supreme crime, the murder of the only righteous person, the very operation that abolishes sin. The maneuver is utterly unprecedented. No more complete victory could be imagined. God responds in the indirect way that is perfectly suited to the ambiguity of evil. He entraps the deceiver in his own wiles. Evil, like a Judaist, takes advantage of the power of good, which it perverts. The Lord, like a supreme champion, replies by using the very grip of the opponent. This was how God intended to save us from the very beginning. Not even the greatest opposition, the gathering of the rulers and the nations of the earth, could stop could come anywhere close to stopping his plan of redemption. And there is no obstacle that will get in his way now. The church in this passage appeals to God's sovereignty in how he foretold and predestined the cross and his faithfulness in carrying it out. The sovereign Lord, creator of all things, knew that the kings of the earth, the rulers, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, and even that will not stop his kingdom. So as we seek to witness and to live boldly, friends, trust in the sovereignty of God because nothing escapes his reach. We trust his sovereignty. As we reflect on his sovereignty, number two, our response we acknowledge the threat. Now, what is the threat? Remember back in what we were reading in chapter 4, they've just been charged not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, verse 18. They've just been threatened, and the religious leaders were trying to find a way to punish them. Verse 21, these are real legal threats, and they have some weight to them. Later in Acts, we read about the stoning of Stephen. How Paul, previously Saul, was dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. This is not just general disapproval or damaged reputations that they're worrying about. The threat is very real for them. By speaking in the name of Jesus, they risk losing everything. Their homes, their freedoms, their property, their lives. And it only gets more real as the book of Acts continues. Now, I'm sure that when the persecuted church in the rest of the world reads this passage, for them, it hits differently than it may for us today. They face threats of being cut off from family, shunned from society, imprisoned, martyred for believing in Jesus. In Hebrews 11, that famous chapter, sometimes labeled the hall of faith, it speaks of how men and women who clung to the truth of the gospel, how they were treated. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, 
They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is no hyperbole. This is perhaps a daily reality for our brothers and sisters in places like Afghanistan, Indonesia, Egypt, to name a few. Let us commit to praying for them and lifting them up that they may continue to trust our sovereign God and to speak the word with all boldness. Back at home, the the threats that we as believers face today truly are smaller in comparison, but they are also very real. Maybe you're worried about how your friends or coworkers might treat you if you invite them to a Bible study. Or maybe you feel like you might be on your last life with a family member that you've been trying to reach out to and they've just kind of been rebuffing um, anything that you've been saying and you feel like if you mention Jesus or the church one more time, they might ignore you forever. Or maybe there's even the fear of being misunderstood as you're trying to care for someone. And friends, consider how quickly things might change in this country. We do face the threat of persecution even today. The culture in our country may be quick to take offense at some of the teachings of the Bible and in some cases can be downright hostile towards Christianity. This acknowledgement of the threat is part of what they mean, the, the early church means, when they continually refer to themselves as servant. Look back at the passage. David, your servant, they say. Jesus, your holy servant, grant to your servants. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If the master is treated this way, facing opposition, arrest, trial, and execution, how much more might his servants But friends, remember also how Jesus told us to rejoice when we are rejected and persecuted for the sake of his name. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we have this suffering We enter into it with Christ. We are sharing in it with Jesus, our master. Later on in Acts, it says that the apostles rejoiced after being arrested yet again. Acts 5, 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Church, the threat of rejection, whether big or small, is very real, and yet even these persecutions are part of the sovereign plan of God, as they had been for Jesus. When we acknowledge the threat like they did and still continue to live boldly for Jesus, he is glorified. There may be times when we are called to be faithful to share the gospel at great personal risk. It is good to count the cost and to recognize that there will be obstacles and opposition But it is even better to bring all of those before our sovereign Lord and entrust ourselves to him and to keep going. 
And that brings us to our third point, our third response when we meet difficulty in sharing the gospel. We trust his sovereignty, we acknowledge the threat, and point number three, we ask for faithfulness. Recently, I've started to play chess a bit more often. One of my coworkers is really into it, and he started a chess club at work, and he has sort of become my de facto chess coach. It's great. He analyzes the games that I play because they're all stored online, and he gives me feedback on where I'm making blunders, which is often, and shows me if I have bad habits that I need to break. One of the concepts that I am trying to learn is how to handle the concept of threats. So the basic idea, as I understand it, is that if one of my pieces is being threatened, my job is to make it not threatened. I'm working on it. Either by moving it out of harm's way or by maneuvering so that the threat is no longer a threat. So essentially, chess is really all about threat management, your opponent's threats and trying to set up some of your own. Friends, in this passage, the church is not interested in threat management at all. As they have looked on God's sovereignty in the past, as they have cried out to God about the very real threats that are before them, they could easily have asked for the threat to be removed. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and please give us fewer reasons to be afraid. Lord, look upon their threats and help them to like us. Help them not to be so mad. Instead, Here's how they respond to those threats. When Peter and John tell them, verse 29, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue speaking your word with all boldness. They're not even necessarily asking for protection or a guarantee that everything will be okay, only that they may continue to speak the word with all boldness. What is the Christian's response to the threat of persecution? It is to ask God for faithfulness. Faithfulness to speak his word boldly. Faithfulness to be the hands and feet of Christ as signs and wonders are performed in Jesus' name. Faithfulness to live out the gospel in front of others. Faithfulness to keep going. And it is important for us to see here that as they ask for faithfulness, their primary request is that they can do, continue doing what? Speaking the word of God with boldness. This is the priority. There are people who have not yet heard the good news of the gospel, both in Jerusalem and in our area today. And the believer's main concern in this prayer is that they may continue to share this good news, the message of Jesus dying in our place so that we can have life forever with him. They also pray, not just speaking the word of God, but speaking with boldness. Remember how we read earlier in chapter 4 about the boldness of Peter and John in verse 13. How even when they have been arrested, hauled before the council of religious leaders, they dare to speak the word of God, though it may have come across as super offensive to their hearers. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. In verse 13, 
they perceived it as boldness on the part of Peter and John. And again, when threatened, verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. A boldness there. They cannot but speak of what they have seen and heard. They can't help it. They are compelled by the truth to tell others about Jesus. For them, there is no other option. It must be done. This is a God-given defiance, not a brash one, not an in-your-face, but humbly saying, I have to keep telling people about Jesus. He loved me so much. Look at all the things that he's done in my life. I can't help it. There is no other option. It must be done. God's word inspires and encourages, yet it also will challenge and correct. It will sting. Am I worried about declaring the whole counsel of God because I'm afraid that someone might take it the wrong way? Are we worried about this? Let it not be. Let us speak with boldness. And friends, this boldness that they pray for is an indicator that we have been with Jesus. Verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We, that they had spent time listening to his word. That it's gone down deep and implanted its roots in our hearts. That we have known and experienced for ourselves the love of Christ despite our many sins, that we too know that there is salvation in no one else, not in works or in pleasures of this world or in self-help or in man-made religion, and that we cannot help but speak of what we ourselves have seen and heard and experienced. We too pray for this boldness and that this work may be done in our hearts and overflow in this. Friends, there are many times when my confidence falters, when I'm so afraid of what someone might think of me that I shrink back from reaching out to them, of mentioning the name of Jesus, or of praising God, or praying before a meal, or even counseling my hurting brothers and sisters with the truths of the gospel. There are times when I shrink back because I am afraid, and when I lack boldness, and maybe you can relate. But we can pray for grace to be faithful, to speak God's words, God's powerful, strong, convicting, kind, comforting, healing words with all boldness. Brothers and sisters, may we also consider our fears, the potential threats that face us today, but may we run to our Father, sovereign over all, and ask for faithfulness. And as we close, look at God's eagerness to answer their prayer. Our sovereign God is eager to empower his church to live boldly for him. Look at the eagerness that we see in verse 31. And when they had prayed, as soon as they finished, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, the exact Thing they had asked for, continuing to speak the word with boldness, God immediately provided. Look at the generous heart of our Father. How eager He is to pour out His Spirit 
How eager he is to grant our request. Jesus said, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. Look how quickly, directly, specifically, powerfully it has been done. When they had prayed, he answered. And what does it mean that the place was shaken? Not just like they were like, whoa, but a physical shaking. A clear sign that God was at work similar to that rushing wind at Pentecost. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, writes, The place was shaken that their faith might be established and unshaken. Not only was the place shaken, but they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Church, in believing the name of Jesus, we too have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. We follow in the footsteps of our Savior, the Anointed One, when he received the Holy Spirit, when he was baptized. And so in a lesser way, we know that the kings of the earth do set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Anointed of the Lord. We know that they gather against us as well. Yet we know that through it all, he will be faithful to make us faithful as well. He will give us the ability to speak the word of God with all boldness by filling us with his spirit. Lastly, how can we as the church encourage one another and pray for one another as we commit to boldly speak and live out the gospel? Some quick thoughts. Join us on Sunday mornings or Wednesday mornings at the church office for prayer as we cry out for his spirit to move among us. Come to fellowship groups and in those contexts, share out who you're reaching out to. Pray for one another and invite others into those contexts, whether they're fellowship group or a barbecue or a meal and just say, hey, I'm gonna mix um, my unbelieving friends and my believing friends and, and see what happens. Just developing those friendships, sharing the gospel organically. Maybe sometimes it's pairing up and going out onto campuses of UD and sharing the gospel there. Also, support the preaching of the word. Pray for your pastors because they're here faithfully preaching the word of God and sometimes there are texts that are going to require them to speak with boldness. Pray for them to be filled with your spirit. The spirit of the Lord, not, not yours. Um, <laughs> And finally, other things like supporting ministries like Crew, partnering with them. We got to pray in the pastoral prayer this morning for them. And let's be quick to befriend the students from Crew and just tell them, hey, we don't really know you, but we're praying for you. Or if you know them, just I'm praying for you as well and caring for them. Friends, our sovereign God is eager to empower his church to live boldly for him. So in response, when we face difficulty, we trust his sovereignty, we acknowledge the threat, we ask for faithfulness, because he will do it. Let's pray.